listening to the Taming Hinges podcast. Conversations about self-awareness and mental health. We talk about anything and everything on the podcast. Real experiences, real life. Come get triggered. Welcome to another episode of the Taming Hendrix's podcast. My name is Phil. I'm the host and creator of the podcast. And today's topic of discussion is depression. Something that I say that I talk about on this podcast. The reason I'm going to discuss depression as a full topic is not to get into the clinical idea of depression, not to get into how to solve your depression or fix your depression. Remember, I don't put a connotation on it. I simply talk about depression as a tool. And I want to explain the reason why I take that stance, why I remove the idea of connotation from the discussion of mental health and depression. I, I do this not to give everyone hope and, and to you know say like, oh, there's a way out. That's not my job here. It's never been my job. I'm not the one to do that for people. I'm not going to help you solve your mental states. I'm not going to help you, you know, find happiness. That's really not my ultimate goal, to be honest. My ultimate goal is to teach you how to discuss these things, how to think about these things, and to really find that self-awareness piece because to me, they go hand in hand. Anyone dealing what's with what's considered clinical depression or what you know psychology and the medical world call depression needs to have the support structure of a better form of understanding or the support structure of better ways in which to interact with what's going on with them. So that's really more of where my discussion comes in, where my viewpoints come in. So to get into them, I'd like to talk a little bit about how we define depression, right? So that's part of the the situation that I kind of go against is I'm not here to discuss the definition of medical depression. That has taken on a life of its own. And I'm not against it. I think, you know, we need terminology and we need all that stuff as far as psychology goes, as far as medical you know, intervention goes and those types of things, that's all fine and well. The real issue is that we've coerced the definition of depression into a medical idea. And it never started that way. It never started as a medical idea. We've just done what we do with a lot of language, which is bring it into a modern field. And it takes on its own colloquialisms. And it, it just kind of builds a, a life of its own. Specifically, when you use something like a word to describe an entire era, you know, we have the 1930s, we call it in the US, we call that the Great Depression. That's, you know, it's going to take on different connotations, it's going to take on different meaning for everyone. So we're going to back up to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, like I usually do. Again, Merriam-Webster's, Oxford's, whatever dictionary you want to use. I choose to use Merriam-Webster's just because it's I like their layout, as I said before. So as far as Merriam-Webster's dictionary goes, you know, the essential meaning up front, they state as, you know, a feeling of sad. Okay, that's that's clinical to me. That's the psychology, that's the psycho, you know, psychological evaluation pieces. What's 
what's really the, the word depression get into? Well, the full definition, if we, we sink a little deeper, has a couple different, you know, I don't want to call them backup uh, definitions, but a couple other definitions we can use here. One of those is a reduction in activity, amount, quality, or force. Okay, let's hold on to that one for a second, because if we step into biology, we get a lowering of physical or mental vitality or of functional activity. I like that. It's a little bit more defined, right? It's not just a feeling of sad, because we've all felt sad. Kids learn sadness very early on. Anytime something horrible and a kid's life happens, it's sad, right? And that horribleness because of their perspective of, you know, they only know their own little world at that point can simply be dropping their candy on the floor. That's a sad moment, the candy or ice cream. Oh, we dropped the ice cream on the floor. Can't eat the ice cream. Everything is horrible. Life is over. That's, you know, that's a perspective of sad. So I like that definition on the biology side of the full definition of depression a little bit better because it gives us a little bit more definition. And again, it's a lowering of physical or mental vitality or of functional activity. In a mechanical standpoint, it's literally a pressing down. That's the definition of a mechanical depression. We just we depress, we press down. And in a mechanical sense, or in a measurement sense, it's a reduction in activity, amount, quality, or force. Why does that matter? Well, that matters because when we look at the origin of depression, we can get into, you know, where we started seeing the word. Um, it has some French roots and some Latin roots. And specifically, when we see the use of depression when it comes to a mental state, we see it come along with the word melancholy. And when we get into that route of, you know, oh, okay, this is where depression is, and it comes from this idea of melancholy, they're usually used together, that gives us a little bit more of a, um, it's, it's a little bit more of a non-psychological evaluation as a whole term, it gives us more of a subjective versus objective area of viewpoint. So again, back to Merriam-Webster's dictionary, we get the melancholy and it's uh, it's old fashioned for sad mood or feeling. That's kind of what, just the end of that, you know, I feel kind of melancholy. I'm just kind of meh. You know, we've, we've kind of turned melancholy into meh. That's the, that's the meme we use for it. Nowadays, just that, how do you feel? Eh, I feel kind of meh. Just that's, it's not, it's not wholly like, oh, the world's destroying itself. And it's not so much of like, oh, yeah, I feel yeah, I feel good. It's meh. It's right in the middle. That's melancholy is that, like, that middle route. And I usually like a middle route. So um, a full definition of melancholy, and there's a bunch going on here because melancholy is also an adjective. So you get, you know, a, a pensive mood. Melancholy can be pensive. You know, we get that meh. I'm, you know, I'm thinking about things. I'm, you know, I'm letting it, I'm letting it, uh, I'm letting it mellow. Melancholy, mellow. I'm letting, I'm letting it mellow. I'm trying to figure things out. And then, you know, if we go really far back, you end up with um, melancholia, which that was a, um, it's an abnormal state attributed to um, excess black bile. Uh, so we get into 
there's there's where our, you know we get that mixing of melancholy was just a descriptive idea of a mood kind of kind of meh but it also went along with other things and other root of words that had had function in medicine so then we combine that with depression and then you know it's not surprising that we use depression in a in a medical standpoint in today's society because it did kind of have a conjoined function there so where does that really take us? Well, it takes us into what we need to understand for the full definition of psychological de- depression or clinical depression, which is um, we, we, we call it major depressive disorder. So it's, it's not just depression. Depression is kind of its, uh, its hip term, if you want to call it. It's, it's the shortened version, but it's major depressive disorder. So it's a full disorder and that's all measurable. And there can be, a, you know, as I've talked about before, chemical imbalances can go into that. Just natural feeling can go into that. Um, there's all sorts of psychology and evaluation pieces that we can, we can bring into the viewpoint here. But the reality is that depression, depression as a word became clinical. It didn't start clinical. It didn't start as a, a medical idea. It had multiple meanings. We just have now taken it into that light. Again, we've added connotation. Well, I don't like adding connotation to things, so we're going to take it out for today, and we're going to leave it as a differentiation point. And here's what I mean by that. It is my personal opinion that almost all philosophy of every age, culture, everywhere, philosophy in and of itself is the basis of studying depression or mental health, specifically self-awareness. I like to say that the journey of philosophy is learning what you're not, forgetting all of it, and then learning what you are. It's, it's this process of learning all of these things about what you aren't, forgetting all that, and then really learning who you are. It's, it's this process that we can look at philosophy as a almost a tool, but really like a true philosopher typically learns a bunch about stuff, forgets all of it, and then incorporates all of it into their their mental state into who they are or their identity. As I've spoken about in the, you know, other episodes, we had kind of these culmination points in the first uh, 14 episodes of the podcast that, you know, we had a couple things culminate into reality. And then we had a couple things culminate into identity. And the reason, the reason that kind of comes together that way is specifically because in philosophy, that's what they studied. That's there's that's what antiquity, you know, thought leaders were doing. I just break it down into my own methodology, which is we have reality and identity. Reality is the education, beliefs, language, relationships, emotions, mental health, and, and essentially, or, or mental states all wrapped up into something called reality. You know, I've talked about before with what's your education level? What are you educated on? How are you educated? 
what are your beliefs? Where'd they come from? What language are you surrounded with? What kind of relationships do you have with yourself, with others, with macaroni and cheese? What emotional processes are you aware of? Do you go through, you know, emotions in a general setting? And inside of that, I talked about uh, how that all comes together in reality and some thought leaders or philosophers from days old that kind of got wrapped up into that. And I, I talked about some of those things. And then I talked about choice and change and how they correlate together, how that, you know, we have perspective. There's the mysteries of all these, like what could be considered universal truths that might be out there and the systems and how systems work and then what truth actually is and how that all kind of brings together what our identity is. Well, that's what philosophy has been searching forever. That's, that's what a philosopher was. That's the thought process in which they were going about. We often kind of tout philosophy as this, like, I don't know, mysticism, metaphysics, when in reality to me, philosophy was a study of oneself. It, it was the original version of what we today call self-awareness. These great thought leaders or these great philosophers of history weren't necessarily teaching to begin with. They were studying, they were trying to figure, they had big questions and they wanted answers and there may have not been a place to find them. So they had to kind of come up with them on their own. So you get what I consider the study of depression, of what mental health really is. And if you take today's kind of idea of that and you look at the way they were speaking back then and the way they were kind of informing their, their students or their populace, we find that it, it was mostly teaching on that feeling. They were, they were teaching on the feeling of melancholy. They were teaching on the idea of mental health. They were teaching on the idea of self-awareness. A lot of philosophy is simply a process of getting through the day, figuring out how to deal with all the bullshit. That's what a lot of the philosophical teachers were writing about and teaching about was how do we deal with all of this shit? How do we deal with this? Because it's, it's never ending and it's crushing at times. So they were very much aware, I think, from the dawn of civilization that Something in the mind could destroy someone. Something in the mental health. Now remember, if we look at antiquity and we look at ancient culture, there was a combination of, of three major health bodies. We don't we don't just have the physical form in, you know, when we talk about alchemy and we talk about traditional medicines, be it whatever culture you get into, Ayurvedic, traditional Chinese medicine alchemy and the uh, you know, Eastern, um, I'm sorry, what would we consider Western ideology of, you know, the United Kingdom and Germany through like, if you want to talk about Norse culture, which we'll get into here in a bit. And these different cultural pathways of what medicine became, even in, in the Greek um, ideas of what medicine was, we find that there isn't just the body. That, that's not how they looked at things. There was more to it. If we want to come fully West and we talk about, you know, 
what is truly Americans, Native Americans. Um, even there, we have a culmination in the Americas, both North and South. And, you know, if we, we jump down into tribal life in, you know, Africa, we talk about the priesthoods in Egypt, all of these different cultures, every ancient culture has a bigger representation to what health really is. And it's, it's typically three pieces. So you get Arcadius Animaeus and Arcadius Animaeus is um, from an alchemical standpoint, the, the animation of Arcadius, which is bigger than us. It's, it's not, it's not the human system and it's not just the mind or consciousness. That's kind of where philosophy's standpoint began was it began from the mind as the mental health. So the three bodies of all of these different cultural representations are, we have the human system, human body. Then we have the mental body, the mind, or what we later decipher as, you know, what we call consciousness. And then there's the spiritual or the other. Um, it's been kind of described in many different forms, but it's this, you know, the astral body, the, again, other, it's, it's always, a, it's a representation of something we can't really see, nor can we really fully interact with, but does fully have effect on us. Someone like Paracelsus von Hohenheim wrote extensively about, you know, the other energy systems, if you will. And Paracelsus treated and did full medicine. Like he did body medicine, but he also wrote about and described these other pieces. And he, he really gets into, and some other philosophers and, you know, specifically those in, in medicine write about how the mind or the mind body consciousness is the translation between those two bodies of health. The, the mind is that middle ground between the orcaeus and the animus, the, the body. So that mental piece was really the most important piece to them because it was the transition period. It was the tr translation. It talked about the interactions of the spiritual or the energy or the other and the body, which to them wasn't ours. In Western medicine today, specifically, we always talk about our body, my body. Uh, that's not that's not really how they used to look at it. It w was always separate. You had a mind or a mental health, that was yours. Your mind, your consciousness, that was yours. The body was just the the animus. It was the it was the animated thing that we got to control. But it was made up of a whole system that wasn't ours. It's full of bacteria and cells and it's, you know, it's kind of more akin to a coral reef in some ways than it is our body. Yeah, we have power over it, but that's a dangerous game they used to talk about, about how just because you had power over something did not make you the possessor thereof or to be careful of the idea of possession. So, it was more of a mindset that we had to translate between the, the, the upper and the lower as above. So below, as I've talked about before. So not to get too far into that, but 
that's the way we used to look at things. So if we take that mindset, right, if we take the idea that there used to be these three versions of the body and we considered the mental state or the mind itself, consciousness, if you will, the translation between what could be, let's call it exo, we've talked about this before, esoteric inside the body, exoteric outside the body, or even side real outside of the earth, which, you know, we talked about astrology and astronomy and those types of things. If we take the exo and the eso, there needs to be a translation between the two. Well, that was the mind. And that was the realm of philosophy. And there used to be no separation between medicine and philosophy. All, all medical practitioners in the beginnings of medicine were, were philosophers. All, almost everyone who studied Buddhism in the beginnings of Buddhism were philosophers. That was, that was the idea. Inside of true Buddhism was this, this study of everything, but specifically study of medicine. Part of, part of the idea of the Brahmin teachings was a higher understanding of medicine in the human system. And the Buddha brought that with them. They brought that idea that like you needed to understand that there's this thing known as the body and we have to kind of take care of it. It's our job to take care of this body so that we can have a material life. And we also need to interact with these other greater forces that maybe we don't understand, but that's part of the idea. It's like we need to understand it, to learn it. It, it was all very um, symbolical, but also symbiotic. The, the Archaeus and Animaeus, they were symbolical, but sim, symbiotic. They needed to exist together. And this is where we get into things that we consider like crazy nowadays about how we have, oh, you know, the bioenergy field or those types of things. And yeah, it comes down to chemistry and it comes down to true, what I consider true physics, which is etheric physics. And yes, there is, there is science involved, but part of it is an unknown. So that's really the realm of philosophy and all of it had correlation to the idea of what we consider today depression. All of the philosophers spoke in terms that life sucked and it was hard and it wasn't supposed to be easy. And there was all these difficulties that one had to overcome and that it was worth it to do so. That was part of living. And we see it throughout all, all cultures, all philosophies, most medical systems that they're the original pieces of the medical systems that there was this thing. The Buddha said life is suffering, right? I've said that before, but if you really look at that quote and really what the Buddha was lecturing on was specifically an idea of, yes, life is suffering, but it's supposed to be that. And it, the differentiation is when we choose how we suffer. So when we, that whole quote of, you know, life is suffering from the Buddha, great quote, but to expand on it a little bit more, we have to look at what the Buddha taught about suffering in general. And that suffering was a karmic process. And we were to choose in this life 
how we suffered so that we could express our karmic health, our karmic system. And we often get into this realm of like karma and karma is, is multiple lifetimes. It's a karma travels with consciousness, with the mental, right? But it exists on both all the it exists in all the planes. So if we if we start looking at the hierarchy of the planes, we have the earthly plane, the physical realm. We have the mental plane, the mental realm, the mental body, and then we have the the astrological or the what is sometimes described as the god realm, that higher realm. Those planes of existence is the interaction of karma. It's it's all of them throughout all time. It's never ending continues forever. Then we have something which doesn't really get talked about a lot, which is Dharma. And Dharma is in this life. Dharma happens in this life. And we're supposed to choose our Dharma. We're supposed to choose our karmic representation of suffering through Dharmic realization into in, in this life so that we can become higher beings or we can transcend, right? That's what the Buddha used to teach. And a lot of that comes from Hindu beliefs and, and how the Hindus teach things. And I am not the one to teach you all that because I don't have all the great vocabulary of all the, as much as I talk about vocabulary, I don't know all of it. I use some of it when I can learn it and, and understand it. I unfortunately don't read, read Sanskrit. I wish I did, but um, Alan Watts is fantastic for that. If I haven't said that, I think I've mentioned him before in the podcast. Alan Watts was a British philosopher who, um, I would say British-born philosopher because he kind of spent a lot of time in America, who took his time in Eastern societies and brought it to the West, specifically brought the idea of what Zen is, brought the idea of what Buddhism is, and taught it to a Western mind in a way a Western mind could incorporate it, which he's fantastic. Please go listen to uh, lectures by Alan Watts. But so we have... The Buddha teaching life is suffering, but on a grander scale, teaching that life's supposed to be suffering, and it, it becomes different when we choose how we suffer. That's the that's the adage I always like to put on. Life may be suffering, but it's it's way different when you actually get to choose how you suffer. When I, you know, when I really didn't have a great home life, I chose to go suffer at work. Home is where the horror is. And work is where I'm going to do my suffering. I'm going to go fucking beat the shit out of my body, doing landscaping, working kitchen, just work 16-hour days. Just go do it. Because home is where the suffering was. I didn't I didn't want to be home. Home was the horror. I didn't want to be a part of that. So I went elsewhere and suffered differently by working harder and, and kind of destroying my body in some ways. But that was the suffering. I got to choose it. It was my choice. So that's where things can differentiate. And then... If we, we go a little deeper here, so we have, you know, Buddha said that, awesome, but remember, there's more to it. Let's look at someone like Gandhi. You know, Gandhi gets quoted a lot, and what I don't think a lot of people know about Gandhi is, as a teen, it's documented that Gandhi had a suicide. He was depressed. He was a depressed teen, and he had a suicide attempt. Obviously, didn't go through with it completely. He did, it was an attempt, but... He lived, and when he talked about those specific that specific time period, and I'm not quoting anything here, I'm just kind of giving you the anecdotal of it all, it's what fueled his, his real work into the independence um, 
for India from Britain because that's that was Gandhi's life work was to to find a way to gain independence for India from Britain. That's what Gandhi was. He was his, that was his thought leader position. That was his position in the societal structure of India at the time was to lead what he considered his people into independence from Britain. And a lot of the drive and motivation that he had to continue to do that, specifically in the nonviolent manner in which he did it, came from his, what would be considered major depressive disorder as a, a youth and his suicide attempt. And then also in the way he treated his wife later on, um, that he understood that violence was not the correct answer. So Gandhi came from like, what would people would consider like, Oh shit. Like he wasn't super peaceful all the time. And like, he was depressed and yeah, massively depressed, attempted suicide, used to beat his wife, learned that wasn't the right way to live, learned that's not the right answer, spun it 180 and then tried to teach it. And if you look at a lot of Gandhi's quotes, that's really what he was getting after was trying to empower the individuals to deal with a life that was shit under British rule that they just, I mean, go study that whole time period yourself, but it was not a fun time in India under British rule. They were getting to the short end of the stick on many occasions. So, you know, the British empire had a, they have a history. Go read about it. But that's what he was teaching about. So as much as we consider Gandhi a, a pretty profound philosopher of modern era, you know, and specifically in the 1940s, when he finally accomplished that, you can see, I'm sorry, in the 1940s, 1947, don't quote me on that, when India finally got independence, you can see his mentality changes. He went from one side to the other side, and then he started creeping back. He started creeping back into what would be considered melancholy. He started losing the luster because he didn't like the way society was going. Even though he managed to lead his people into independence, he didn't, as a worldview, he saw that humans were essentially destructive by nature. And that's where some of his later speeches and quotes, you can start to see that that's really what he was erring towards was you have to protect yourself from these things. You have to worry about your mental state. You have to, you know, learn about yourself in order to get through this because that's what he did. Gandhi learned about himself and strengthened himself. You know, uh, what's the famous quote? Um, be the change you want to see in the world. That's what he did. He was just talking about himself. He's like, I didn't like feeling this way. I didn't like taking it out on others. I'm going to act that way to elicit the change that I should see, which is nonviolent, non-compulsory, but, you know, those types of things. That's so, I would say Gandhi's teachings came from a, what we consider depression. He was teaching about that teaching how to deal with it and how to work with it. We've seen that 
in multiple instances, again, when we talk about philosophy, specifically when we, you know, we quote philosophers a lot. And I'm not saying that's wrong. You know, there's a lot of things that can be gained. Just go read some philosophy quotes and see how you feel about it. It's a great way to learn about yourself in some ways. But when we look at the verbiage, and I know translations can be, you know, messed up and they're not always great. But if we look about how these things are put, we can see that a lot of these philosophers were talking about mental fortitude. That's what they were doing. Specifically, if we look at Stoicism as a whole, you know, we can look at Marcus Aurelius. That gets touted as Stoicism constantly, right? Well, let's take a couple quotes from Marcus Aurelius and we'll break them down a little bit. Marcus Aurelius. Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not a truth. Is that not a person trying to protect themselves from bad information, coercion, just things that are going to put them in a bad mental state or in a, at a disadvantage? Because you have to remember, this is a, a leader of society, a leader of an empire. You know, can't get corrupted, can't get coerced into things, need to you know protect the interests of the state. Everything we hear is an opinion, not a fact. Let's look at that nowadays, right? Everything is, or even better, everything we see is a perspective, not a truth. When you get out on Instagram and you look at those fucking wealthy people out there taking pictures with planes and getting their party on at the club and, you know, buying all these shots for everybody and, you know, we're buying brand new fancy Ferraris and cars and taking pictures with their Lambos. It's all perspective. It's not a truth. There's no truth here. Cause you know what? The truth is a lot of those people just pay to take those pictures or it's an opportunity picture where they take a selfie with a sweet car. They don't own it. It's their friends or somebody they met, you know, that's the reality that it's just a perspective. It's just an opinion. Things we hear are opinions. Things we see are perspective. It's not fact or truth. We have to define that for ourselves. Remember, that's what I've talked about when we come to our conclusion of our identity. So Marcus Aurelius was saying, protect yourself. People are lying all around you. There's bullshit everywhere. Protect yourself. Learn how to define these things a little bit better. Learn how to look a little harder. You know, don't take everything with a grain of salt. Don't trust everything. Be a little skeptical. Another one, Marcus Aurelius, you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength. Again, talking about a mental strength here. He's, he's talking about, I don't have power over the things that are happening around me at all times. I need to learn how to control myself. I have power over my own way. I have power over my perspective. I have power over my opinion. So as much as you know, the other quotes might be talking about the outside influences, it's specifically talking about what he's not really saying. He's not saying control your opinion and control your perspective outright. He's saying that those things out there are not yours. You do have control over yours though. That's, you know, again, talking about mental states. Uh, last one here from Marcus Reyes, we'll, we'll break down a little bit. Live your life, live your life as if you are ready to say goodbye to it at any moment, as if the time left for you were some pleasant surprise. One more time. Live your life as if you are ready to say goodbye to it at any moment, as if the time left for you were some pleasant surprise. That's the talk of someone who has contemplated suicide. That is the talk of someone who has been 
subject to the idea of death. That is someone who has contemplated their mortality and gleaned some sort of wisdom out of it. That's a strong position. Live your life as if you are ready to say goodbye to it at any moment. That's, that's someone who has had the process in their mind, the conversation in their head or with themselves about like, do I want to live? Do I need to be here? Um, what happens if I die? And I get it. You know, we look at it historically as, man, people were probably trying to kill this guy regularly. Well, yeah. I mean, there was definitely assassination attempts and he was just a state leader. He was running a, a, he was running a, a country, essentially. He was running a, you know, a society. He was a king. People want to kill him. That's a known fact, but there's more there. If you look at the way he speaks about it and, and the whole idea of his meditations were really his documentation of his own thought process because he couldn't share it with others. This person, because we have to look at these people as people, right? They're not, just, they're, yes, they were great thought leaders and they're philosophers and those types of things. But before all that, they're just people. This person clearly thought about death a lot to have come out on the other side and said, be willing to die tomorrow or die today. doesn't matter. That way, everything seems precious. Everything seems like bonus. It all seems, that is a trick of the mind. I'm not saying it's a bad one. It is just is one. It's a stoic trick of the mind, to be honest, because Marcus Phillips was a stoic. That, Contemplation is simply contemplating what a lot of people in in the clinical side of what we consider major depressive disorder think about. That things are shitty. I don't know what to do. I'm not sure how to deal with this. I'm feeling very melancholy. I can't get out of bed. His statement to all of that is, okay, If you do, it's all bonus, right? Which kind of makes it better. Kind of a, a better idea, a better perspective, a better opinion. Because you create it yourself. When you go against that ideology that you've created, which is what I believe Marcus Aurelius would call depression, if he was alive today and looking at it and we gave him that terminology, he'd be like, that's an ideology. You've created an ideology. He's like, here's how I would look at it. And I it's all conjecture, but I think he would look at it from that stoic standpoint or from his own personal standpoint of if you just go against that, you've already won. It's already bonus because it's fine if it all goes away. I'm completely okay with that idea. His idea on suicide, on on it all ending right now would be, that's fine. That can totally happen. But everything that happens after that point, after the decision of saying, death's fine, I'm totally okay with death, this could all just fucking end, don't care. Everything after that point is free bonus. It's all freedom. I think that's what he would define as mental faculty of freedom would be, death is fine. I have no issue with it. Now it's all freedom. Now I get to have my own opinion. Now I get to have my own perspective. Now I get to create my own strength of mentality. I think that's how he would go about it. I might be wrong. Who knows? But let's look at another Stoic and, and use another quote here. Um, Epictetus, 
Epictetus, is happiness and freedom begin with a clear understanding of one principle. Some things are within your control and some things are not. That's a stoic being a stoic. Again, though, someone who's contemplated the fucking horribleness that is humanity, because no, we're not amazing. I would, I would argue we're not even that intelligent. We define our intelligence through our own definition. That's psychotic. We're all in a psychosis. <laughs> That's a lot of what humanity defines as human and defines as intelligence is all created by us. We've created all the definitions. Remember how I talk about duality and how duality is two sides of the same coin? Well, the odd triality of humanity is that humans are human by definition of humanity. We've, we created ourselves. We created our intelligence. We created our mentality. And by that definition, we're artificial intelligence. We're, we have no, we have no discourse. We have no forum. We can't ask the dog, can't ask the cat, we can't ask the lion, we can't ask the giraffe. We can't ask the turtle or the dolphin. We can't ask them, hey, do you think we're intelligent? Are we more intelligent than you? Than you? Like, are we smarter? We just assume that the reason we are more intelligent is because they come to us for food. Doesn't that make them way fucking smarter than we are? That they've learned to symbiotically live with us? Cats are genius. I would argue cats are maybe smarter than we are. Cats got us to be like, oh, you're so fluffy and cute. I want to love you and hold you and pet you and feed you every day. And you can just get to sit on the couch. I'm just going to leave you here to roam about the abode and I will feed you and I will take care of you. You don't have to do anything but look cute. I've also just designed all of Instagram for the most part or a whole subset of Instagram that you don't have to do shit as long as you just look cute. That's all you got to do. Just look cute. Let me touch you every once in a while. That's, that's not a definition of intelligence. Okay, we're not more intelligent than that animal. They're probably more intelligent than us because we got they we got them to believe that shit. They got us to believe that shit. Like that's so our definition of intelligence is like it's psychotic. It's it's a psychosis that we all live in, that we've all defined, and that is the idea of the of the of the body health. That's body versus the mental health. Our mental health has all come down to this mix-up of translation. And here, we'll take it one step further. Socrates. To find yourself, think for yourself. That is a person defining there's some bullshit out there. You got to protect yourself from it. That's what Socrates was saying. Socrates is known for saying things that were completely wrong in hopes that his students would stop him, call him out and say, Hey, what the fuck? That's wrong. You're wrong. Why, why would you, he made mistakes on purpose specifically because he understands that there's the primes and balance comes from imbalance. Balance comes from that whole, I, I've talked about it before. The, the world of nature 
Earth itself, universe, balances things using primes. It uses things that are asymmetrical. So, you know, we get the Fibonacci sequence, all those things. That's how you look at it mathematically. But Socrates would use that in the methodology of if he was giving a lecture, he would throw in something that was completely wrong in hopes that his students were paying attention. And they would be like, wait, um, that's, that's not that's wrong. Because remember, he gave lectures in the forum, and the forum was a place where anyone could stop anyone at any time while they were speaking and say, hey, hey whoa, whoa, defend your point, and then have a, a discord or have a, a forum interaction. So when Socrates, Socrates says to find yourself, think for yourself, he's talking about self-awareness and had been the entire time. So was Epictetus. So was Marcus Aurelius. So was Gandhi. So was the Buddha. And I'm going to go even farther. I'm going to say every form of conversation on thinking, philosophy, religion, mathematic, anything was a, a conversation of self-awareness, of mental state, because that's the translation point. Our minds are the translation between the body, the materium, the archaeus, the things we can't see, the spiritual, the above. Specifically, if we want to take it down the spiritual realm, and we all know how I feel about organized religion and I'm against it, but religions as a whole, as a, as a belief structure, if you want to have belief, I'm all for it. I don't like blind belief. That's dogma and that's not okay. But again, being ignorant because you were never taught is fine, but being willfully ignorant, not a good game to play. So let's look at some of the, let's, let's take some spiritual ones and then also non-spiritual ones, which are, gets a little convoluted, I know, but let's start with, let's start with one of the big ones. Christianity, right? I know I harp on Christianity a lot, but that's because I'm against the organized side of it, not so much the belief side of it. Religions and beliefs are different. Religion is an organization. Belief is whatever the fuck you believe in. No blind faith, though. Not okay with blind faith. Christians, seven deadly sins, or what's known as the capital vices or, or the cardinal sins. Remember, vices, though. There's many more than those. They just kind of gave them a hierarchy and said, hey, Here's the seven worst. Well, that's one that's one interpretation of what's actually the whole piece here. But they have the seven deadly sins. The seven deadly sins, in my opinion, were touted as the seven deadly, as the high, the high cardinal sins, because those were the most likely to lead to mental anguish, to lead to mental health issues, to lead to destruction of the mental state and the dissolvement of the translation between the spiritual and the physical. It's technically what the 10 commandments are for is to have a position of translation, a mental idea between the physical, the materium and the spiritual to have a spiritual body, to have a spiritual life, to be welcome in the arms and the house of God upon death was to follow the 10 commandments here in, in materium so that you would have that symbiotic relationship of the purity of body health and purity of spiritual health through 
the inception of the mental health. Judaism has a little bit, in my eyes, a, a better take. They didn't give a hierarchy. In fact, there's 613 commandments that I know of. I might be wrong. I, I've not had teaching on this in a very long time, but um, any violation of that commandment is what was considered sin. And there was no, they never put connotation on like, oh, these sins are worse than those sins. It was just a, there was no seriousness to it. There's, it was just, here's the commandments. As far as I remember, there's 613 of them. Don't fucking break them because that will dishevel the mental and it will disconnect it in, I don't remember the exact word, I apologize, but there's a specific idea in the Hebrew culture and specifically in, in Judaic mysticism that the breaking of the commandment is fine as long as it was natural and not willful. So if um, there's some like really specific commandments, um, I'm trying to remember one off the top of my head. I believe one of them was along the lines of like how, um, how not church, uh, at the synagogue, how the, um, let's just call it a speech. I apologize that I'm, I'm not more well vocabulary on this, but the, when the rabbi were to be giving, uh, the sermon, I think and I, I might be wrong with that word. I apologize again, but when the rabbi was speaking to the synagogue in whole, there was a specific manner in which things were, you know, a specific way things were supposed to go. And one of those is a, I think it starts with a T and I can't remember what it is anyway, is um, a specific way and things again are supposed to go. And there's a specific time when things are supposed to be said. And if the rabbi were to forget that, that was technically a breakman. It was breaking the commandments. But if it wasn't willful, if it just was a mental lapse and just forgot to, you know, read that part or say that piece, eh, oh well, there was, there was some bigger cosmic play. Maybe, maybe things needed to wrap up two minutes faster than they were going to because one of the members needed to leave at a certain time so that they would get past the drunk driver on the highway and they wouldn't get caught up in the accident. Who knew? That's how the Judaic mind, specifically in Judaic mysticism, there is no connotation of the seriousness of breaking one of the commandments. Whereas in the Christian community, there was the seven deadly sins. It's a combined conjoined idea, though. The seven deadly sins were really the ones that the organization felt not to break, to keep the mental health, the mental member, the translation piece in alignment with the spiritual and the physical so that there would be no depression. There would, there wouldn't be that melancholy state because that was a dangerous state to be in, in the old way of thinking in Judaism. That idea was spe specified by, Hey, don't break the commandments. That's bad. Don't do that. If it does happen and it wasn't willful, it was an accident or, you know, not that serious. Okay. Like we can let it go. We can move on so that there wouldn't be what's considered bad reflection 
on having broken it. And then that would lead to more breaking of the harder one reflected on a breaking of a commandment. The more commandments may then be broken. That was how I was kind of taught it. But so there's that stepping out of the spiritual side of things and getting in just a, a canonical writing set. We go to Buddhism and we have the five hindrances. And I know the podcast is known as taming hindrances. Um, I consider it in taming hindrances and neural kinetics, which is what I call thinking or think, but I also did study the five hindrances. I'm going to get into those at another time because they are very simple. One of them is just sloth, you know, or right mind, they call it. And, you know, but there's the wheel bearing, but it gets, it gets much deeper. So it's, this is not the time to reflect on it, but they had the hindrances and the hindrances were methodologies for the physical, the mental and the spiritual auto align so that someone wouldn't get caught into melancholy. In fact, one of the hindrances is kind of the idea of melancholy is the don't let yourself get stuck in that state. So they, they were teaching against men. They were teaching mental health based on a, a form of self-awareness. That's kind of it. And then if you want to get into spiritual Buddhism, specifically if you get into Shintoism, there's the idea of everything having a spirit and that kind of matches up to the teachings of Paracelsus and how Paracelsus always taught about like the sylphs and the undines and how there was these, the archaeus, the, 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 the spiritual world or the world we couldn't see, the higher energies forms, how they had an effect on us. Well, Shintoism, spiritual Buddhism, or one of the spiritual Buddhisms, I should say, is the alignment of everything does have a spirit. So I shouldn't just cut down the fucking forest because we have to have a symbiotic relationship. I shouldn't, you know, forget about my elders and ancestors, even though they died, because their spirit may live on. And it, it's very complex, very complicated, but very beautiful in some ways. So again, though, these were teachings on mental aspects, of interpretation, mental health. They were teaching about it the entire time. Most religions have taught about mental health, just not, it was... Most religions came about to teach people how to live their lives in a way that would be in accordance with a higher power. But in reality, it was just so that you didn't have to feel like shit all the time because life is hard. Going into something I've, I've studied extensively, we get the North, the uh, North, Norse, what people now call Viking, but the pagan traditions, right? If we look at, the pagan communities, which I argue is where Christianity got a lot of its teachings. There was this idea, and I don't remember the specific name for it, but there was an idea of stripping someone of their rights and banishing them from community. Um, there was two forms of this, two major forms. It was varying degrees, but two major forms. One was to strip someone's right as a, as a essentially a societal member and to make them a slave. And they didn't consider slaves people. Being a slave was to be you were you were then cattle. You were you were no longer human. They literally talked like when you became a slave, like your your humanity was taken off the board. You were no longer a human. You were simply a body. All you had was body health. There was no mental health. There was no spiritual health. Runes could not be cast when it came to the outcome of a slave. That was one of the ways they took away the humanity is the spiritual leaders would not deal with the slave because 
the slave had no spiritual essence. They had no connection to the gods. They were taken from that. They, they, they were, again, just cattle. I'm not condoning slavery in any way. I'm just saying that's how the pagan communities dealt with slaves. There was also a process, and again, I'm not saying it was okay, there was a process for a slave to redeem themselves and thus be given back their humanity. That was a process. So that's the first way. The second way was to be completely ousted, to be completely considered no longer human, no longer part of society. And in fact, that's the first version of what we consider demons or the idea of a daemon. That's kind of where that came from. The, the pagan communities, if we look at, um, specifically if we get into like early Roman Empire, you know, we talk about Hadrian's Wall and the, the, the North people, where we talk about the Celts and the, the Druidic orders. There was a version in which you would be removed from society by being what's considered not possessed, but daemon. You, you were you were a demon. You were no longer human. Maybe you had committed murder. Maybe you had done some atrocity to the village or the tribe. And thus, your humanity was taken from you. And you were now classified as non-human. That was to take away, again, all spiritual and all mental. You were now just a, another physical life form, life form with only physical or in some cases what they considered corrupt mental and you were eliminated from society. In fact, sometimes you were just hunted. You were Volknir. I want to say it might, I might be wrong, but something about the Volknir. I can't remember the North term. I apologize again. My terminology for all this is a little rusty, but the idea again though is there. And let's take it a little step further we in modern society, you know, the Viking thing has come around again and we're kind of like you know, the TV shows and the real history is a little bit different. The Vikings were very fair people. Um, they were different in their ways of thinking and all there's, so we call it Vikings. Viking is, is a, a verb. You go Viking. It's an action. It's to go Viking. The Viking people were those who viked. To viked was to was not to farm. It was to go and take from your adversary what you needed to be superior in force. You would go Viking. That's Viking. So you had the coastal Vikings or those who Viked from the coast, which was to go raid other villages. And they all kind of started it in themselves. And then they later branched out as they became very seafaring people. And then you have the inland Vikings, which fought wars upon themselves and into other, um, you know, whatever land masses they could get control to, uh, which is why they built Hadrian's Wall was to help keep out the the North or the the North Vikings, which were actually farmers who would come down and take things. It gets all very complicated, but that idea. So what we consider the Viking people are really North Germanic tribes of the time, because Germany was much bigger back then. So you have the, the Northern tribes and they later became farming tribes and then seafaring and trading and all this stuff. But before that they were considered the pagan tribes and in the pagan tribes, there was the spiritual belief of the specifically the North pantheon. 
that was a common belief upon all them. There was some Roman intermixing later. So I mean, the you know um, the Roman pantheon, and then we get some of the, the Grecian pantheon. It all kind of came together in the end in some different places. But specifically, the time period that I'm talking about, we we say the Vikings. We had the Norse pantheon: Odin, Thor, Freya. Um, I could, we can go through all of them, but you know they're all there. A lot of people know them nowadays. They've been kind of made impressive by the Marvel community and all that stuff. I'm totally for it, but it's a little bit different than how they write it. There was this idea known as Valhalla. And Valhalla is a place after death. Spiritual. It's it's a higher energy. It's go across the Rainbow Bridge, talk about Rainbow Bridges. The Egyptians had a very similar idea of the path of a spirit. But we, in modern society, talk about how everyone, everyone who died in battle went to Valhalla. That's not true. How it's really described, and there's some varying opinion here between each tribe even, Valhalla was specific to, so we had Freysha would pick who she wanted specifically to be a part of the Valkyrie. And then Odin would kind of get the rest in the realm of Valhalla. And to... Go to Valhalla was there was there's a few specific paths. Most of those were defined by being an amazing warrior on the battlefield and killing your adversaries and then dying during battle. That was one methodology. Later, there was a representation of being of great import or great support to the tribe, to the village, to the societal idea of the North people the North, the Proto-Germanic, if you will, specifically North Germanic, to be of great import to that. That could have been a major warrior on the battlefield or it could have been in major defense of your community. You know, you died protecting the longhouse from an outside invader, but you killed that invader at the same time. Typically, there was a, a fighting death involved, but... Not everyone got to go to Valhalla. That's pretty regularly, you know, stated. Like, it's not for everybody. So, the reason this is important is because the teachings were based on the idea that you could go to Valhalla. It was possible if you lived a certain life and lived a certain way and kept a certain mentality. Again, we're teaching about mentality. Most of the spiritual figures in North mythology or most of the spiritual teachers of the pagan ways, I should just put it that way, the spiritual leaders of the pagans taught a lot about mental health, taught a lot about self-awareness. They taught about community and they taught about right and wrong. Most of the children in a pagan community were taught not by their mother and the father. That's, a th- I mean, obviously they had interactions with their mothers and fathers, but these are working people. These are people building community and out hunting and fishing and farming and, and trying to survive. So the children were typically left with either the grandparents, if they were still alive, which was very rare. And really what was considered the, the grandparent, 
it was a community-led thing, and that was typically a spiritual leader. And so that spiritual leader was tasked with teaching the youth. And one of the things they would teach the youth is right or wrong. And they had specific laws. The pagan communities are some of the first universal law sets we find. We find that if you went from one pagan community to another pagan community, there was a set of laws, a set of rules that were absolute, that had to be followed. This is what we talk about when we talk about the Christian tenets, you know, being a good Christian or, or the, the Judaic commandments and the methodology to be a, an individual in society. Um, Islam has the five pillars of Islam. These are ideas of community and society to uphold the idea of community and society. And they are taught to an individual in an individual manner, specifically how their mind works, self-awareness, and being of a mental state. That's what all of this comes from. So when I talk about depression and I talk about that, not from a clinical standpoint, from a taking the connotation away, it's because that's what we did. That was what we taught in philosophy and spiritual leaders, the spiritual community heads from pagan to Christian to Judas, Judaic to Islam to spiritual Buddhism, Buddhism, Hinduism, the Japanese taught about seppuku, honorable suicide in you know their culture. We've not shied away from these conversations ever until modern society made it not okay. And the reason we made it not okay is because it became clinical. It became a part of health. And when things become a part of health in this modern society, it becomes in the realm of insurance. And when insurance is involved, law is involved. And when law is involved, there's lawsuits. And it becomes very, very opinionated and very dangerous because you can be sued, which is why I have to put the disclosure on. And I have in the past, and I will do it at the very end here. I should have done it in the beginning. I'm not a doctor. I cannot diagnose or prescribe. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a professional. I'm not even an authority. I'm just an idiot. Take this all with a grain of salt and do your own research. But the reality is to me, the truth is to me, that the idea of depression is modern. The idea of mental health and self-awareness is ancient. And we've been teaching it from the very beginning. Unfortunately, we've most recently lost our way. We don't give someone the faculties to deal with their mental states. That used to be a part of growing up, used to be a part of early childhood development, was to sit with the spiritual leader and learn how to interact with society how to be a proper member of society, but at the same time, how to protect oneself. And it never stopped. From the very beginning, as the child learning to farm, or the child learning to vike, or defend their village, to the teenager learning to take care of their elders, or to sit in the forum, to the adult teaching the younger crowd, or, or supporting the culture supporting the society, there's always been a tool they could lean on to learn about themselves or to learn more in general and a greater idea of awareness when it came to their mental health. 
And this is what philosophy is. It's what philosophy is taught. So if we look back, we get a better understanding of depression. We get a better understanding of self-awareness and mental health. And that comes from a standpoint of no connotation. Actually, it actually comes from a standpoint of connotation that life fucking sucks and it's hard and it's, it's not supposed to be easy and there is suffering and it's not going to be perfect because perfection is unattainable unless it is attained. And then it was attained by asymmetry, which means it came from unperfectness. It came from a broken standpoint And we don't, we don't teach that anymore. And that's why I like to remove the connotation from depression. And I speak of depression as a tool because that's the way philosophy taught it was you are depressed. Here's what you can do to fight off the melancholy, to fight off the feelings that come along with it because the world is depressed. In, if you look at the realm of where the word depression comes from, one of the first uses, specifically in the French and Latin uses, of depress or depressio, I think it is, was astrologers and astronomy talking about the stars or the sun going below the horizon. That was one of the first mentions of where we get the word depress from was for an astrological body to push below or go below, depress from the horizon and thus disappear. The original understanding of what a depression was, was the disappearance thereof, of something exoteric. And so it is not far off to say that the esoteric idea the philosophers then came up with was the disappearance of mentality. That would be depression. And we are in that state constantly because again, the mental state is the translation between what we used to consider the archaeus and the animus, the body. Your mind is your, is your way of understanding those two things. And together they make the triality that is living. So no, it's not supposed to be easy. It is supposed to be some form of suffering. But when we choose how we suffer or when we understand that everything we hear is not an opinion, Marcus really, or is an opinion, Marcus really, it's not a fact. Everything we see is a perspective, not a truth. That you have power over your mind, not outside events. Realize this and you will find strength. Socrates, to find yourself, think for yourself. Buddha, the life is suffering. Choose how you suffer. Gandhi, be the change you want to see in the world. These ideas are ways to deal with what's around us. And they are specifically designed from the state of depression. Because all of these people were depressed. The universal truth of humanity is we're all depressed. Almost all the time. Because we are constantly in a state of seeking the balance between other, spirituality, higher power, gods, God, 
chair, macaroni, cheese, burger, identity, and the animus, the body, the health state. So when one of those things is out of balance, it all comes down to the mind. It's all translated in the mind. When we're dealing with constant pain from an injury, you know, or a genetical thing we, you know, we don't have control over yet or don't quite understand, it affects the mind. When the astrological body is like the sun is beating us down with radiation and we don't quite understand what's going on, it all happens in the mind. When we can't grasp what maybe happens to us after death because our belief structure is not there or we were never taught any version of spirituality that we might agree with, it all happens in the mind. Everything we do is mental. Everything we do happens in the mind. That is depression. It's all of the things around us leaving the horizon known as materium and becoming depressed into the mind. Everything gets depressed into the mind. That's true depression. That is my definition of depression is how things enter the mind, how we interpret because everything is depressed into it. It's how we, we learn. It's how we interact. It's, that's my idea. That is my, my long-winded explanation of how I think about depression. Everything's depression because it's getting depressed into the mind for translation between the physical and the non-physical. However we want to understand that. That's up to the individual. That creates part of our identity, which is, leads to the definition of the reality in which we live in. That's the first, first 14 episodes of the podcast. So take that as you will. But I hope it gives you an understanding that back to Socrates, to find yourself, think for yourself. That's the answer. That, yes, clinical depression exists. I would never say that doesn't exist. And it is an outlet for some people to go seek clinical help through that realm of diagnostic and help. Medication, counseling, whatever it might be. That being said, everyone's depressed. Everyone lives in depression. And it's up to you to understand your depression and then use it because it is how you interact with everything around you. The world depresses itself upon us. It's translated through the mental faculties of self, consciousness, whatever you want to call it. And it incorporates everything from the world we don't see, call it spiritual or other, whatever you want to name it, and the physical or the materium, as I call it, all goes through the mind. And once you understand that, you can start defining everything else around you. You can look at how you feel, not why you feel or what you feel, just how. How do I feel? Not right now, not at this very moment. 
Am I feeling melancholy? That doesn't matter. How do I feel? How does my mind interpret all of these different senses of touch and smell? And this is what the Buddhism gets into with the five hindrances. But, you know, again, sense of touch and smell and, and sight, all these senses that I have, or do I have? The body has. All the senses this body has that I get to interpret. I get to see them. If I told you at birth, growing up, that cold, things that are lower in temperature, is actually hot, and things higher in temperature, hot, is actually cold, that would be your interpretation. It's just words. We just, we just deal in words, which is why I say that we're just artificial intelligence. We've just defined ourselves by ourselves. And in some ways we lack an understanding of the medium in which we do definition. Remember, everything's dual. Duality found in triality. Two sides of the same coin, but it is a coin. And that coin is the measurement structure. And we like to fiddle with that as, as humans. Humanity is in and of itself defined by itself for representation of itself that is how we know there is self. And I find that to be the defining point of what depression is. It's all definition. And when we learn that we can control how things become defined by our understanding of their definitions... We are then fully in control of depression. So I'll leave you with that. Do of it with what you will. Go back and look at some philosophy. All philosophers were depressed. All spiritual leaders have been depressed. It's all depression. It's just a, it's just a definition. It's just a way of understanding. So define your depression. Define your definition. Take care. Thanks for listening. Come check us out at taminghindrances.com for show notes, links, resources, and more. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, RSS, or your preferred platform. If you leave us a spiffy review, we might just mention it on the show. Now go be awesome. And just remember to breathe.